Hey everybody, it's John Marinelli from ENT in a Nutshell. Just want to make sure you're aware of our website, headmirror.com, where each podcast is keyword searchable and the content, along with our surgical video atlas, is systematically organized by subspecialty. All right, time for the episode. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith, and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist, Dr. Andrew Scott. Today, we'll be discussing Pierre-Roban sequence. Thanks for being here, Dr. Scott. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. First, let's talk about what Pierre-Roban sequence is. Can you define the sequence for us? So Pierre-Roban sequence, also known as Roban sequence, and there is some, uh, not so much controversy, but the way that people refer to this in the literature has been changing over the years. And the current nomenclature that is most supported is just simply Roban sequence. So we we dropped Pierre's first name. Um, and that is a triad of micronathia, glossoptosis, and then airway obstruction. And so it's called a sequence rather than a syndrome because you can have any number of syndromes that are associated with those findings. And the sequence is small jaw, which then, because of where the tongue is attached to the jaw, will then position the tongue superiorly and posteriorly, which is the glossoptosis. And that will, in some children, cause variable degrees of tongue base airway obstruction. And when that occurs and you have all three together, that is Roban sequence. Most children with Roban sequence will also have a cleft palate. And that cleft palate is not caused by a transcription factor gone awry or anything like that. It is a downstream effect, almost the fourth part of the sequence. Whereas the glossoptosis is so severe that when the palatal shelves go to close, the tongue is in the way. It's physically impeding the palatal shelves from coming together. And that gives you a part of the sequence, which is the incomplete cleft palate. But from a strict definition standpoint, uh, the, the three parts are micronathia, glossoptosis, and airway obstruction, with or without cleft palate. So you discussed the sequence of events that happens during development that causes these anomalies to form. Is there a genetic component to this? So there definitely is familial Roban sequence. Uh, I have seen several parents with seemingly isolated Roban sequence who then go on to have babies with something similar. The most common syndrome or inherited form of Roban sequence is Stickler syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder that comes in multiple forms, but most commonly three forms. And in the most common forms of Stickler syndrome, uh, there's connective tissue disease with varying degrees of myopia. And so this can be diagnosed on ophthalmic or ophthalmologic exam at times. Um, But there's non-ocular forms of Stickler as well. And there's variable penetrance to the phenotype of that gene, but many children will have uh, micronathia associated with it. And then depending on how severe that micronathia is, they may have Roban sequence. Uh, But it will skip generations, or at least uh, the expression of it will. But Stickler syndrome is autosomal dominant, so we do expect one child in each generation roughly to have uh, at least one child in each generation to uh, to have the phenotype. And then there are other conditions that are also more obvious, such as Treacher-Collins syndrome, Nager syndrome, um, and, uh, and velocardiofacial syndrome. Though often in velocardiofacial syndrome or 22Q11 deletion, there will potentially be micronathia, but not always glossoptosis. And there is some controversy in regards to 
truly how um, symptomatic children with with uh, velocardiofacial syndrome are from a micronathia or Roban sequence standpoint. But the most common one is definitely Stickler syndrome. And in uh, certain places in the U.S., especially the Midwest, that has been characterized as upwards of 50% of children with Roban sequence, if tested, will have some form of Stickler syndrome. Uh, other studies in other parts of the country have not necessarily borne that out. Moving on to presentation, how does a patient with Roban sequence typically present? So typically, if it presents after birth, then it will be a phone call from the neonatal intensive care unit or from a surrounding nursery that there's a child who has strider, though it's not really strider, but that is typically what the complaint is, or noisy breathing, and then uh, what looks like a small jaw. And if you ask more questions and then you say, is there, you say, is there a cleft palate? Then they typically will say, oh yeah, yeah, there's a cleft palate too. And then if you have that constellation of, oh, we have a baby with a small jaw, difficulty feeding, noisy breathing and a cleft palate, that's usually over the telephone, a, a child with Roban sequence. What's interesting is that if you look at enough babies long enough, you can convince yourself that every baby has micronathia. I mean, that they all have what looks to be a small jaw. And so that is a bit of a judgment call, as much as many experts try to say they've measured the discrepancy between the maxilla and this and that. There really just hasn't been, it's sort of, sort of like tonsil size, that there is like a trend towards it mattering, but maybe not necessarily in terms of the degree of symptoms. The, the thing that causes symptoms in Roban sequence is the glossoptosis. And so uh, when you look in that baby's mouth and you see the undersurface of the tongue and the tip of the tongue is pointing upwards, then you can usually convince yourself of the micronathia there if it isn't so obvious. But that glossoptosis is really the symptomatic element. And so they present with airway obstruction and with difficulty feeding in the constellation of that phenotype. You mentioned that some of these cases can be detected prenatally. How exactly does this happen? So increasingly, micronathia is being identified prenatally on uh, screening ultrasound. And what happens is we will get a call from the maternal fetal medicine folks saying that they have identified micronathia on ultrasound and they repeated it and the jaw is still small and whether or not we'd like to see that patient. And the answer to that question is pretty much always yes, because while micronathia is somewhat of a subjective call, uh, as a baby or a fetus rather is followed over time, if that persists and all of a sudden you see other findings that suggest potential airway obstruction, such as uh, increasing amniotic fluid index or polyhydramnios, then that would uh, infer that that baby may have an airway issue at birth. And so it will change sort of where we recommend the mother delivers and uh, the kind of environment that's around in terms of airway support. One thing that can be done is uh, to obtain a fetal MRI. And uh, there's increasing data suggesting that that's a useful uh, diagnostic tool when evaluating a fetus with micronathia. And what we're looking for in the MRI are some particular findings, such as the position of the tongue and the shape of the tongue. And there's evidence that if the tongue is displaced posteriorly or has an abnormal shape, which essentially signifies glossoptosis, that that could then signal that you are indeed dealing with Roban sequence rather than just a fetus that has a weak jaw or, or retronathia on um, profile view. In addition, you can look at the amniotic fluid index on MRI. You can look for any other central nervous system abnormalities or other anomalies that might pop up, which would tell you whether that child 
may or may not have difficulty uh, supporting the airway at delivery. And then you can often see the presence or absence of a cleft palate and take more direct measurements of the anterior facial angle or the inferior facial angle, which is uh, sort of a measurement of uh, how retruded the mandible is. And so if we see a inferior facial angle that's abnormal and a posteriorly positioned tongue and the presence of a cleft palate, we pretty much know then that you're dealing with a fetus that has uh, Roban sequence. And then you can counsel the mother uh, accordingly in terms of whether they should be delivering in the community or not, and then what to expect after birth. Uh, and so the studies are still ongoing in regards to whether this has any meaningful effect on length of stay after the NICU or rate of operative interventions in regards to uh, uh, how a baby will do if they were identified first in the NICU versus prenatally. But it, it's certainly an interesting uh, factor to examine. So how common is Pierre Ruban sequence? So it varies a bit geographically, and it varies by uh, by race. Among whites and Latinos, or uh, rather uh, non-Black uh, Hispanics, it looks like it is about one in seven or one in 8,000. The lowest rate is definitely in non-Hispanic Blacks, where it is, it, it's at a much, much lower rate. Interestingly, when you look at the rate of syndromic Roban sequence, that is pretty much the same across races and um, is related to the fact that it is the genetic condition itself that is causing the, the issue. So I can tell you anecdotally that among my patients or babies that are, 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 are Black, pretty much every one of them has Stickler syndrome. I don't think I've ever seen isolated Roban sequence. Whereas that's much more common among uh, Latino babies and, and whites. Moving on to workup, when we're talking with parents or the team caring for the child, what are some important history questions to ask when evaluating the patient? So first and foremost, as in any airway consult, and that's what this is, at least as otolaryngologists, first and foremost, this is an airway consult. So we want to make sure that the child is stable and that there's uh, no concerns in regards to uh, how uh, labile or the airway is and, and that the baby's able to breathe spontaneously and, and maintain their saturations. Once we know that the airway is relatively stable, we can then ask about other associated anomalies, family history, as we've gone into before, and then uh, history of polyhydramnios, and then uh, whether there's uh, any abnormalities of the ears or any, any other aspects. Uh, cardiac abnormalities, central nervous system abnormalities. And then when examining the baby, we want to uh, look for how well they're able to breathe when lying on their back versus on their side versus in prone position. One of the first things that can be done to stabilize the airway is to flip the baby on their side or uh, in a prone position. And so many times by the time we get there, that's already what you're looking at. And then that sort of gives you an understanding of how stable or unstable the airway is that you're dealing with. And then um, the presence or absence of a cleft palate on exam. Sometimes you'll be told there isn't one, but then when you really look and get a good, good exam, which is difficult sometimes in a baby with a small jaw in order to get your tongue depressor back far enough, you'll see a bifid uvula or an incomplete cleft of the soft palate. And then typically we will perform a flexible laryngoscopy either through the mouth or the nose, usually the nose, 
though, if there's a cleft palate, it's kind of one and the same, uh, to assess the degree of tongue base obstruction and if there's any other synchronous airway anomalies. In some children, such as those with velocardiofacial syndrome, you might see a left-sided vocal fold paralysis or, or uh, certainly laryngomalacia is not uncommon in these babies as well. And uh, there's a reasonable rate of prematurity because some of them will have polyhydramnios and that, that will lead to earlier delivery. So you've started to mention some of the airway anomalies we can see in these patients. Do these patients require an airway evaluation either at the bedside or in the operating room? In general, the teaching for that is yes. Uh, I think as a pediatric otolaryngologist, we are always biased. I mean, the indication for an airway evaluation for us is if the you're alive, essentially. But the um, every every baby deserves a good airway evaluation. But uh, even among the general plastics, oral surgery, um, craniofacial literature, because the presence or absence of a synchronous lesion in the airway, such as laryngomalacia or tracheal stenosis, or some other cause for sleep apnea or airway obstruction, is a potential risk factor for failing a surgical intervention for Roban sequence. And so pretty much it's in everybody's interest to thoroughly evaluate that, that airway before anyone makes any decisions about how to move forward in terms of what's the best surgery for the baby. In terms of how often that bedside evaluation with a scope changes management, I would say most people say that it's, it's very, very important to do. But for those of us that perform mandibular distraction regularly, I'm not entirely convinced that it makes a huge difference. Uh, but, but it seems like the right thing to do, so we do it. We've talked about a number of associated genetic syndromes. Do you send all patients for genetic evaluation or is it more on a case-by-case basis? So I personally believe that every child with Roban sequence should be seen by a geneticist. Uh, The long-term outcomes in regards to uh, risk of recurrent sleep apnea, certainly speech outcomes following cleft palate repair, vary by whether a child is of syndromic status or isolated. And that really is a diagnosis that must be made by a geneticist. What's tricky is that the workup is is somewhat limited and might vary geographically and in terms of the resources available. And so the gold standard would be single gene stickler testing for pretty much every child with Roban sequence. And that's just simply not covered under insurance in most places. And whereas there are other places where it is covered and everyone gets it. So... Um, what we can do in lieu of that is at least screen for the most common forms of Stickler syndrome, which are ocular Stickler. And so I think it's pretty much understood that every, every baby with micronathia or, or Roban sequence is recommended to have an ophthalmology consultation where they can look for the signs of Stickler syndrome in the NICU. Uh, sometimes that happens and sometimes it's deferred into the outpatient setting. But if there is enough findings um, on that exam, that will make the diagnosis even independent of gene testing. Likewise, I think most people would favor getting an echocardiogram on the baby, especially if you're going to intervene surgically. You want to make sure that any signs of CO2 retention or oxygen desaturations in a child with a cleft palate and other anomalies uh, is purely related to their airway and you wouldn't want to put a child through a mandibular distraction or another airway procedure only to find out that the real problem was their VSD. And so uh, we typically recommend that as well. But yes, genetics for, for everyone at some point. So we've discussed prenatal imaging. 
Is there any role for imaging in the postnasal period during the workup for these patients? There is some controversy in this area as well. Um, certainly if jaw surgery is being planned, if it is using an internal or buried device, which we'll get into later, most uh, people would recommend getting a CT scan of the mandible just for surgical planning. Depending on whether other dysmorphic features are present, such as if there's microtia or absent zygomas or downsloping uh, palpebral fissures or any other stigmata that would suggest something like Treacher-Collins syndrome or ocular auricular vertebral spectrum or some neural crest abnormality, then a CT scan is usually performed in order to assess the mandibular condyles. In order for jaw distraction to work, you need to have a glenoid fossa and a good mandibular condyle so that when the distracted segments of the mandible are pushed apart, that the posterior aspects of the mandible will engage in the skull base. And when that happens, then the bone segments have no choice but to move forward, which will then give you the advancement that you're looking for. If you fail to identify that and you put a child through the surgery and then it doesn't work and then you scan them afterwards to find out they they didn't have the requisite anatomy, then that's poor form. So if there's any question, we will, we will get a CT scan. The reason I say it's controversial is because at the beginning of uh, mandibular distraction, it was primarily external devices that we were using. And some of us, including myself, still use them from time to time today. What's nice about the external device is you don't need a lot of bone stock in order to apply it. And that if there's any changes that need to be made throughout the, the distraction process, you can make them in real time on the fly because all of the mechanisms for changing angles and the direction and vectors of the advancement are right in front of you in an external device. Therefore, those of us that still use external devices rarely get CT scans preoperatively on babies unless we feel like they have high risk factors for having absent condyles or something like I described earlier. And that avoids a CT scan and radiation in the neonatal period, and it also saves cost. And so there is some discussion about that. So next, let's discuss treatment. I'd like to mention that we have a previously published podcast episode on cleft palate. So for this episode, we'll focus on the management of the mandibular hypoplasia and the airway obstruction seen in these patients with Roban sequence. So first, thinking about patients with more urgent or acute airway issues, what are some maneuvers that can be helpful in this particular patient population? So in a child with micronathia, just like an adult, um, one of the first things you can consider is just a jaw thrust uh, and or at least turning the baby on their side or prone and letting gravity give you your jaw thrust. In Roban sequence, the problem with related to airway obstruction is pretty much entirely tongue-based airway obstruction, where the glossoptosis is, especially if there's a cleft palate, is occluding both the oral and even nasal airway if the tongue is going through the palate. And if you can reduce the tongue out of the palatal cleft, then that will allow the child to breathe through their nose and, um, and pretty much solve whatever problem you're dealing with at the time. Anecdotally, when we have the feeding team start to feed these babies, but you know, if they're not going to have surgery or before surgery, sometimes the speech and language pathologists will talk about physically putting their finger inside the child's mouth and reducing the tongue out of the cleft and then putting the bottle in and how that's a requirement in order to get them to safely feed. And so that tongue is trapped uh, in between the palatal shelves, um, or at, at sticking against the roof of the mouth, if there's no palatal cleft. 
And so as long as we can reduce that tongue forward, you will improve airway obstruction. If it's a really bad situation and you can't get that tongue forward with either changes in positioning or, or attempting a jaw thrust, uh, a nasopharyngeal airway uh, or nasal trumpet can be placed. You just have to be sure that it's going over the tongue because if the glossoptosis is bad enough, it will go through the palatal cleft and come right out through between the lips. And so that needs to be positioned in order to get behind the tongue. And it isn't so much that the baby will be breathing through the lumen of that tube, it's that that tube breaks the seal of the uh, dorsal tongue against the posterior pharyngeal wall. And then finally, a laryngeal mask airway, if it's a really bad situation, will pretty much rescue any Roban airway, so long as there isn't severe temporomandibular joint ankylosis, or sometimes, very rarely, there's the anomaly of synathia, where the maxilla and mandible are actually fused together on a bony standpoint. But if you can get that jaw open and get an LMA in, that will that will solve all problems. There's many, many uh, reports of babies that could not be intubated and ultimately underwent an awake tracheotomy. But even those that couldn't be intubated could always be temporized with a laryngeal mask airway. And so uh, that that's a great rescue to have in the delivery room and in the NICU. Next, focusing on patients without an acute airway issue, how do you determine who is a good candidate for observation and watchful waiting versus those patients that require some sort of intervention? So classically, that decision is made based on the presence or absence of obstructive sleep apnea. And so most consensus guidelines will suggest that the newborn should have a sleep study. And if that sleep study is abnormal, then an airway intervention can be considered. But from a practical standpoint, not all centers have the ability to obtain a neonatal sleep study. It also is essentially never reimbursed from an insurance standpoint. And um, it's not entirely clear that we have good normative data for what a good normal sleep study should be in a baby that is two, three, ten days old. Uh, many of us feel that if you were to subject every healthy child in the newborn nursery to a sleep study before they went home, the rates of obstructive and certainly central sleep apnea would be pretty significant. And so I'm a little jaded about this. I obtain sleep studies really only if I want to do surgery because I've pretty much never seen a normal sleep study on a baby under two weeks of age. And so if I want to do the surgery, I'll get a sleep study because it always gives me permission to do it. Now, Historically, before we were doing all of these sleep studies, the intervention rate on a baby with Roban sequence was anywhere from 30 to 40%. And that was based on clinical signs of airway obstruction, um, primarily related to failure to thrive because the child can breathe and the child can eat, but the child cannot breathe and eat. And so these are babies that will be seemingly stable from a respiratory standpoint, but as soon as you try to feed them, will have impairment in their suck, swallow, breathe sequence. And because of that, will have trouble um, gaining adequate weight. And so these babies, if they were stable, would then get a gastrostomy tube um, and then sent home. Then there were the more severe children who were have episodes and spells of airway obstruction. And their airway obstruction was significant enough that there was no need to get a sleep study because 
whether the sleep study was positive or negative, their symptoms when awake were severe enough that they were unstable and needed to be intervened against, uh, intervened upon. What some centers do uh, in lieu of a sleep study is they will obtain a capillary blood gas. And that is a heel stick, which requires very little blood that will allow you to evaluate the child's pH, bicarbonate, CO2. And we have normative data that's quite reliable for newborns because this is a common metric used in newborns. And after a certain period of time, you will start to see hypoventilation and carbon dioxide retention on the blood gas. And that's a very good objective measure for hypoventilation um, and essentially uh, hypercapnia, chronic respiratory failure. When the bicarbonate starts to climb, you know the kidneys are kicking in to try to do a metabolic uh, compensation for this chronic respiratory acidosis. And so from my standpoint, when I see objective signs on the capillary blood gas of chronic CO2 retention, that's when I intervene. Otherwise, if there's obvious upper airway obstruction, like we discussed, or obvious failure to thrive, those are also indications to intervene. What surgical interventions are available to address the airway obstruction these patients have? So the first option that definitely should be considered is non-surgical, and we talked about just positioning, and some children will do well with positioning alone. And if we see that they're not having desaturations and that they're able to feed and get by just with side-lying or prone positioning intermittently, then that's all they need. Uh, the step up from that would be placement of a nasopharyngeal airway. In Europe, people will make custom appliances that look almost like a baby retainer that will hold the tongue forward, and there have been excellent published results on using that in many parts of the United States. Uh, and a modified endotracheal tube will be placed... Um, in the nose that serves like a nasal trumpet and parents will be instructed on the use of this and that will pull the tongue forward and babies can eat and breathe well with that and they will utilize it for the first three to six months of life, sometimes even up to a year. If their airway stabilizes, that can be uh, removed. And so that is the subset of children that don't require surgical intervention. In those that do, a tongue lip adhesion uh, procedure can be performed uh, that is being done less and less these days, but there was definitely a time even 10 years ago or five years ago where there were parts of the country that were tongue lip adhesion territory and others that were tracheotomy territory and others that were mandibular distraction territory. People who like tongue lip adhesion and perform it frequently report good results with it, uh, but even those centers that do the most of them when they analyze their outcomes objectively, especially with sleep studies, found that although they improved sleep apnea, they rarely resolved it. And so that intervention is falling out of favor. The G-tube rates after tongue lip adhesion are about 50% as well, so it's not a great intervention in terms of feeding. Then there's uh, tracheotomy, which is the gold standard in many ways, um, and that just bypasses the problem altogether. And uh, once a baby has a safe airway through a tracheotomy, uh, then you know that whatever tongue-based obstruction is happening is irrelevant because we're now breathing through the neck. The problem uh, is that the baby now has a tracheotomy and has all of the morbidity that's associated with that. And I won't get into that because we're otolaryngologists and we know, um, but it will solve the problem. Um, and then eventually the child can be decannulated. Most babies with a Ruban sequence that get a tracheotomy uh, will have enough dysphagia persist that they will need a gastrostomy tube. 
that is definitely the option that we favor for syndromic cases in which there's absent condyles or other problems that would prohibit jaw distraction, or if there are other uh, central nervous system abnormalities or pulmonary uh, abnormalities that would then have the child need a tracheotomy anyway, regardless of whether you positioned the tongue out of the pharynx. And then finally is mandibular distraction osteogenesis or MDO. And that um, has been around for about 20 years at this point and uh, is definitely the intervention of choice. And so in terms of evaluating who's a candidate for that, uh, there's there are many different ways to do that. CT scanning may or may not factor in, but the primary one is to make sure there's no neurologic abnormalities, uh, cardiac and pulmonary abnormalities, or um, anything else that would make the child need a trach for reasons independent of their Roban sequence. If none of those are present and the child, uh, if you fix their tongue-based obstruction, would be apparently completely normal, then they're a good candidate for jaw distraction. Let's dive a little bit into mandibular distraction osteogenesis. Can you walk us through the pathophysiology behind MDO? So for this operation, um, essentially, the concept is that a cut is made in the bone, and this is done by making an incision first under, along the undersurface of the mandible. And then that allows you to elevate a subperiosteal plane over the buccal and lingual cortices of the mandible. And so you've sort of opened that, uh, that space, that subperiosteal space. And then a cut is made in the mandible and uh, hardware is attached on either side of the osteotomy. You then close the wound and essentially close that incision you made within the periosteum, uh, though it's rarely actually closed. And within that periosteal envelope, you are now having clot form and all the normal factors that are involved in bone healing. As the regenerate is what we call it, um, of new bone is forming in that osteotomy. If you leave it alone or you fixate it, just as we do in any mandible fracture, eventually the bone will harden and you will have union of the bone. But if you let it start to heal and then after a certain period of time, which could be minutes or it could be days, uh, depending on your protocols and what age group you're operating on, you then start to slowly move the segments of the bone apart from each other you will essentially stretch that, that healing bone uh, bit by bit each day. And this will allow you slowly over time to lengthen the bone between the two uh, areas of hardware that have been attached. Because this happens at a very slow pace, it will also allow you to stretch the inferior alveolar nerve that has been spared within your osteotomy and the facial nerve that's traveling outside and the muscles and tendons and all of the soft tissue. And so it's essentially slow soft tissue expansion while slowly spreading the bone segments apart. Once you've reached the distance that you want, the hardware is maintaining all of the, uh, is maintaining the position of the soft tissue in the bone and is absorbing all of the stress of the expansion that you've done. And so that you then let it sit for a certain period of time, which we call the consolidation phase. And that can vary anywhere from four weeks, six weeks, months, depending again on protocols and the age of the patient. And then at a later date, come back and remove uh, the hardware. At that point, once you've removed the hardware and enough time has passed, uh, the distracted regenerate has uh, ossified and mineralized and you now have grown bone. 
Can you discuss the surgical procedure for mandibular distraction and walk us through where the osteotomies are made, where you're placing the device, etc.? So for older children, this can be an entirely transoral procedure, which is certainly very slick um, and uh, and avoids an external scar, but may sometimes require trocar incisions, which then give you an external scar. And so although I personally have dabbled in both transoral and external approaches, certainly for neonates and younger children, and honestly, older children, um, I think an external approach is definitely gives one the most control. And as long as you close your incision carefully, it, it has a very favorable aesthetic result. And so we make an uh, external incision, and that could be anything like a Risden or retromandibular incision to even a submandibular incision. I tend to make my incisions a little lower than other surgeons because there's often a skin relaxed skin tension line or a crease that you can hide the incision in, in a baby. And uh, when you do that, because they're so young and they heal so well, it is really hard to find that scar uh, later. Uh, it's, it's shocking, actually, how well it heals. Whereas if it's placed in a different position, it will stretch and, and it will, uh, you will get some degree of scar widening, though in general, uh, the outcomes are, are, are adequate and parents rarely complain. Through this external approach, just as if you were approaching a mandible fracture or a submandibular gland excision, um, in the newborns, I would think of it more as a submandibular gland approach, uh, but again, different surgeons do it differently. I identify uh, the superficial layer of the deep cervical fashion and size that. The submandibular gland in an infant is not fatty. It looks like a lymph node. It's pink, and um, it's shockingly high. Uh, and just like you would for any neck dissection, you incise the fascia overlying uh, the inferior aspect of the gland. And then I develop a subfascial plane of dissection over the gland. Um, and that takes me to the inferior border of the mandible. The uh, facial artery and vein are there. And although those can be ligated, it's nicer if you can preserve them. And so usually one or two small tributaries are taken down with a bipolar. And then we can find a nice window to approach the inferior border of the mandible. And we incise that with either bipolar or cautery or sharply, and then using a subperiosteal elevator, elevate the masseteric muscle um, and uh, develop a uh, subperiosteal plane of dissection over the buccal cortex. This elevation is done posteriorly to the point where you don't necessarily want to see the coronoid or the sigmoid notch. And again, these are babies. And so like two sweeps of an elevator and you'll get there. Um, The... Elevation superiorly in those areas will often uh, unmask some bleeding, especially along the lingual aspect from the um, from the sort of the pterygoid plexus. And so it's it's best to not overly elevate if possible. We then expose anteriorly, just shy of the of the mental foramen, and then you do the same thing over the lingual aspect of the mandible. And once that's been exposed, and you you pretty much can then plan where your osteotomy is going to be. And, uh, and where to make your cuts and where to attach your hardware. This is just when I would say that it depends on the type of procedure you're doing, whether you're going to place an external device through K-wires that are placed through trocar incisions versus an internal device uh, where you're going to fixate plates. Uh, these mandibles on these newborns are very, very small. And so for me personally, I do like a CT scan for internal distractions so that I know where I can place my plates without having the screw go through the inferior alveolar nerve or into a tooth follicle if possible. 
The osteotomy may be vertical or it may be curvilinear or maybe inverted L um, to try to avoid one of the developing follicles if possible. But if that can't be avoided, we just go through the follicle and do our best not to disturb it. Most of us tend to use the piezoelectric device at this point, and that does a pretty good job of not destroying the dental follicle. Next, can you discuss the different options available for the types of distractors? So I don't have any uh, conflict of interest or, you know, skin in the game, but uh, there's a number of different companies. Uh, Stryker has just come out with a new, uh, relatively new uh, internal neonatal device. Um, so, uh, but the most common one that's used across the country is KLS. Um, and they have a lot of different, um, options, even just for neonates. And so most people use that again, I, I have no conflict of interest or reason to support that, but that's just fact. Um, uh, in addition, Synthes, uh, Dupuis Synthes, uh, makes a, uh, uh, internal distractors as well. Theirs was recalled off the market for probably almost eight years, um, but has recently come back on and they have an internal and external options as well. For external, uh, I prefer using the Synthes multi-directional um, distraction device. Uh, it, to me, it's the lightest and best made and is less likely to extrude and, and be overly bulky and awkward. But I've, I've used all companies' devices in one form or another at this point. Um, and so for those are the, the options that are present uh, currently uh, among mains. I'm sure there are others, but those are the primary ones uh, in the United States. And then for surgical sort of simulation and virtual surgical planning, if you choose to use that option, um, those are all available through all three of those companies as well. You mentioned that there are internal and external devices. Can you discuss the major differences between those? Yeah, so the external device looks like a like a tinker toy, basically. And so what we do is you make your submandibular incision, you approach the mandible, you make your osteotomy, or rather you plan where your osteotomy is going to go. And then you make an incision in the cheek that's like a trocar incision if you were to be screwing in a plate for a mandible fracture or something. And through that trocar incision, place two K wires, uh, which will then provide fixation anterior and then two posterior to the planned osteotomy. Once those are in, you complete your, uh, your osteotomy, preserving your inferior alveolar nerve. And then the device that is used to move those bone segments apart is entirely external. And that fixates to those four K wires that are now sticking out through the skin. And that distractor has the ability to, to move in a linear direction, which is what we have for the internal distractors as well. But unlike the internals, the distractor also can flex both varus and valgus, sort of medial and lateral. And then also um, it, can, it can bend like an elbow. Um, and that's a very nice way of correcting an open bite deformity if that's developing over time and adjusting for asymmetries. I personally think that the external device has a bit of flexibility built into the K wires. And so I think it puts less strain on the temporomandibular joint than the rigid fixation of the internal devices. The downside to the external devices is that it leaves these two trocar incision scars, which are uh, visible and they're not horrible, but sometimes they pucker and rarely do parents ask for a revision, but 
more commonly, I wish they would because I think I could make it look better. But they're small uh, incisions akin to excising a mole. And so if you do have to revise, it's not a big deal. What's nice about the external system is that hardware removal is very, very easy. It takes about two minutes. And I've done it in clinic. I've done it on someone's couch at home in a house call. And it, uh, it's, it doesn't put the facial nerve at risk at all. And it does not necessarily require another general anesthetic. And so that is a nice option for parents that don't want another surgery, don't want to put the facial nerve at risk again, and don't uh, want yet another big, big-ish procedure on their, on their under three-month-old baby. What's nice about the internal system and why most people use that is that it is um, entirely buried under the skin with the exception of the activation arm, which sticks out typically in the mastoid area, though some surgeons cite it anteriorly. And then once you're done pulling the segments, pushing the segments apart uh, and you're done with your activation or distraction period, you the activation arms are modular and you can remove them and then like a JP drain, the... Uh, the, the site will close and then all of the hardware is completely buried under the skin and invisible during the consolidation period. Uh, a lot of parents like that option because they don't like seeing all of the hardware outside. Interestingly, the data has not shown that the infection rate is less than the external device. Not entirely sure why that is. I think it's because parents with externals take meticulous care of them, but you would think there'd be a less, a lower infection rate for the internal and there actually isn't. And, uh, the second operation to remove the internal is essentially the same as the first. It's again, accessed through the retromandibular or submandibular incision, elevating uh, the soft tissue uh, through fresh scar and preserving the marginal mandibular branch of the facial nerve and then removing the hardware. Um, and it's an overnight stay in the hospital. And, uh, and usually, at least in my hands, takes a couple hours to do. So after placement of distraction device, how are these patients managed postoperatively and what is the timeline for distraction? So there are a number of different protocols out there, but they're pretty similar. And most people will keep an infant intubated and sedated after their distraction procedure. I would think of it very similar to laryngotracheal reconstruction. You have a child with an unstable airway and you've just done an operation to fix it or to start the process of fixing it. And so it's a critical airway and the child needs to be uh, in a position where they're not going to accidentally extubate uh, for a certain period of time. If a child can be extubated the day of jaw distraction surgery, I would respectfully suggest that they probably didn't need the surgery in the first place. So if you're going to give a child general anesthetic, all of the swelling and edema that's related to this procedure and then the pain associated with breaking the jaw in two places and say that that kid is still going to have a good airway, then I can't imagine it was really that bad to begin with. So I typically leave a child intubated for about uh, anywhere from three to five days. And um, there was recently a paper in uh, out of uh, China that looked at their average length of mechanical ventilation, and they, they felt that the optimal time frame was anywhere from five to six days. And uh, during that time is the latency period. And again, some people will start activation or distraction right then and there at the time of surgery. I personally wait 48 hours for the bone to start to heal in a newborn. And then after 48 hours, start the turns. And so uh, after about four days of uh, intubation, sedation, after surgery, we're typically getting to the point of three, five millimeters of, of advancement. 
And there's some data to suggest that five millimeters is kind of the magic number, at which point the tongue pops out from the posterior pharyngeal airway on a newborn. And so that's the guideline that I use. I want them to be about five millimeters of distraction before we extubate. And what's nice is usually at that point, their pain is minimal um, and the swelling and edema has gone down and you've improved the airway. And so extubation is usually pretty uneventful and they do very well after that time. In terms of the rate of activation, that actually varies by the manufacturer because some of them you turn the uh, screwdriver that we use to the activation instrument one turn and it will be one millimeter and others it's 0.5 millimeters and others it's 0.6 millimeters and it's and so that sort of dictates the units and uh, the increments in which you can do uh, distraction but for younger for internals where it's one millimeter per turn i will typically do two millimeters a day until extubation and then i slow down to one millimeter a day and then for the externals I do 1.5 millimeters a day or 0.75 twice daily. Typically that keeps children in the hospital for uh, a very predictable amount of time. So activation is usually done after about 10 or 12 days, and then they will predictably be discharged home uh, fully oral fed and without any monitors or any services between post-op day 12 and 15. So when you're talking with parents preoperatively, what are some risks of surgery and potential complications that you counsel parents on? Mandibular distraction osteogenesis, in my opinion, is just like an amazing, remarkable operation. It's like science fiction. Uh, The babies look completely different within one week, and parents are always amazed by that. Um, It's akin to when you fix a cleft lip where the child goes into the operating room and comes out looking completely different. And sometimes the parents will say, oh, she looks just like aunt so-and-so. And And it's the same thing with mandibular distraction. Once the jaw's in the the proper position, oh, he looks just like your father. And so um, parents like this operation and they, they really, really seem to feel like it, it, it helps and they're glad they did it. But there must be some degree of, of bias associated with that because to agree to it is really, is really something. Uh, on, at face value, it is a very aggressive and barbaric procedure. Uh, we make incisions and we break the jaw and we attach this hardware and we crank it forward and it just seems like you know something that is very violent and for that reason there was a lot of resistance to this operation in many parts of the country for a long time but because the outcomes are so reliable and in general are are so much better than what we had seen with tongue lip adhesion um, pretty much everybody including the NICU nurses are sold on it and so while we are trying to be honest with parents about what to expect Honestly, the NICU nurses usually lean into them at some point and say, trust me, you want this operation. I've been around forever. I've seen all the different ones. This is the best. And so I think we, we, the nurses are the ones that really drive that. But in terms of going through what the complications are, the primary complication is damage to the developing molars. And uh, we're still looking into the predictors of that and when it happens and how often it happens. But historically, it's about 25% of kids will have loss or damage of at least one of their mandibular molars. And um, that's not a huge deal. It's better than a tracheotomy, 
but the orthodontists don't like it and um, it can cause some downstream issues. There's the risk of marginal mandibular nerve uh, paresis or even palsy, um, though thankfully that's not very common, but it can occur. Transection of the inferior alveolar nerve is definitely possible. I've had that happen a couple of times out of maybe 40, 50 cases. So it usually does not happen. Ironically, the times it has happened, uh, which was earlier in my career, those kids are much older now and they have absolutely normal sensation. They cannot tell the difference from their normal side and they have no sequelae from it whatsoever. So although I always want to preserve that structure, I actually don't worry about it that much. As opposed to when you do it to someone who's grown and older and they will hate you forever if you cut that nerve. The other risks are that you go through this operation and that it doesn't work, that it doesn't achieve your endpoint, which is avoiding a tracheotomy and avoiding a gastrostomy tube. But the rates of avoiding tracheotomy are about 98%. And that's been shown in multiple studies, uh, maybe anywhere from 95 to 98. Gastrostomy tube rates after jaw distraction are nationally about 18%, but in some centers we have it down to maybe 10 and so, so it, it's pretty reliable, and, uh, but that is a risk. Uh, and then finally, that you have to do the surgery again, or that the child still has some residual airway obstruction, even if not needing a tracheotomy, has sleep apnea. And there's scarring and all the other things that go with it. Finally, thinking about long-term follow-up for patients with Roban sequence, what does long-term care look like for these patients, and what problems can they face down the road that might need to be addressed? So we spoke about some of them. I mean, certainly any child uh, with Roban sequence and for sure any child that underwent a surgical intervention for it should be followed by a multidisciplinary uh, craniofacial team. And in part of that craniofacial team are dentists, orthodontists, oral surgeons, otolaryngologists. And um, those uh, people should continue to follow these children. They're at a significant rate for um, residual sleep apnea and need for a secondary intervention, even if it's a tonsillectomy at some point. They're at risk for abnormalities of dental development. Even children that don't undergo mandible distraction who have micronathia, because it's a prom- it's a primarily an issue of neural crest development and migration, the rate of hypodontia or, or lack of teeth is very high. And so some babies will, and children will be missing mandibular teeth anyway. And then if you add the surgery on top of that, it could be more. And so dental care and uh, orthodontics are very, very important. Later in life, if they require a secondary procedure, or any other uh, issues related to temporomandibular joint uh, stiffness or dysfunction, uh, which we're still evolving to see how frequent of an issue that is, um, oral surgery will need to be involved. And then uh, genetics through the team as well in terms of seeing if any uh, other uh, findings or stigmata of other syndromes show up and during the course of development that would explain why this happened and risk factors for it in the family or in subsequent children. Uh, and then um, if there's a cleft palate, everything related to, to cleft palate care from ears and speech to uh, orthognathic surgery and, and, and beyond. Dr. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I don't think so. Only just to say that, that, you know, I have my own soapbox about this in terms of the fact that the medical home for a child with Roban sequence is 100% clearly and squarely in the otolaryngology office. These are children with dysphagia, 
with breathing problems, with potential speech and hearing issues. And uh, the management prenatally of these fetuses is entirely dependent on securing their airway. And so I think it's important for all of us to be familiar with the diagnosis and be fluent in, in how to communicate and, and what the issues are uh, on hand with them, because uh, they're, they're, it's a fascinating population to take care of, uh, incredibly rewarding, offering multiple interventions and, and exciting sort of developments throughout their childhood. And so I, I'm glad that uh, we're talking about it, and I, I really appreciate the invitation. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks again for joining us. In summary, Pierre Robin sequence or Robin sequence is the triad of micronathia, glossoptosis, and airway obstruction, and commonly cleft palate as well. Some associated syndromes are Stickler, Treacher-Collins, and Velocardiofacial syndrome. Patients can present with signs of airway obstruction and feeding difficulty shortly after birth, and these patients are increasingly being detected prenatally on ultrasound and fetal MRI. In patients with acute airway obstruction, prone positioning, a nasopharyngeal airway, or in more severe cases in LMA, can be helpful measures. Patients can be managed conservatively with watchful waiting, with oral devices, or with surgical interventions. Surgical interventions can include tongue lip adhesion, although this is not performed commonly, mandibular distraction, and tracheostomy. Mandibular distraction allows for osteogenesis of the mandible, as well as stretching of the surrounding soft tissues and inferior alveolar nerve. Potential complications of mandibular distraction include dental injury, inferior alveolar nerve or marginal mandibular nerve damage, non-union, device infection, scarring, and persistent obstruction. I'll now move on to the question portion of this podcast. As a reminder, I will ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. The first question is, what are some associated syndromes seen with Pierre-Robin sequence? There are three syndromes that we commonly think of as being associated with Pierre-Robin sequence. Stickler syndrome is a connective tissue disorder and the most common syndrome associated with Pierre-Robin sequence. Treacher-Collins and velocardiofacial syndrome are the two others that we commonly think of. The second question is what is the triad of Pierre-Robin sequence and what is the sequence of events during development that causes this to occur? The triad of Pierre-Robin sequence is micronathia, glossoptosis, and airway obstruction. During development, the patient will first develop mandibular hypoplasia or micronathia, and this leads to poor positioning of the tongue or glossoptosis. The airway obstruction uh, will be caused from the posteriorly positioned tongue, which obstructs the oral airway, or sometimes even the nasal airway as well, if there's a cleft palate and the tongue is protruding through the cleft. The third question is, what are some maneuvers that can be used to help with the airway obstruction seen in these patients? To help with the airway obstruction these patients have, you can use a jaw thrust, positioning the baby on their side or in the prone position, or using a nasopharyngeal airway. The child won't necessarily be breathing through the lumen of the nasopharyngeal airway, but rather it helps break the seal between the tongue and the pharynx. Additionally, if these measures are unsuccessful, a laryngeal mask airway can be used. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.